The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles, if you would now, to the book of Galatians, chapter 3, and We're taking our text verses tonight from verses 23 through 29, and we will look at these scriptures, just read the scriptures and get right into our study this evening. So if you look at Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 23, the Apostle Paul says, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. If... And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, we're still with this outline that I started weeks and weeks ago, and it seems like forever since we have been on this, but this is part of that original outline on these particular verses. And let's just get uh, that part of the business out of the way first. The first part of your outline concerned the bondage of the law. Now, this evening we are going to finish this third chapter and this final part of the outline by discussing just another wonderful aspect of our salvation. Uh, We've been studying for a great amount of time the Galatian church and its problems, and most of those are related to the doctrine of justification. The Galatians have been deceived by false teachers that tried to confuse them about the means by which we are justified with God. And there's only one way that we can be justified, and as I've mentioned many, many times, this is the cardinal doctrine of Christianity. We must get this right. There is only one way for us to be justified, and that is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, there are only two ways that are actually proposed for justification, and you know those well by now. One, I've just mentioned, that is justification by faith alone, and the other is justification by our works. And those two ways are represented in the book of Galatians, especially here in this third chapter, as faith and law. And faith is personified in Abraham, and law is personified in Moses. And when you take law and faith and you separate them in that way, and you take each of them as a proposed means of justification, these two concepts, faith and law, become diametrically opposed to one another, and they become bitter enemies. And it's Satan's tactic to try to separate those two because he knows it's always best to divide in order to conquer. But faith and law were never intended to be separated. In fact, they're intended to be complementary because they both have the same object in view, and that is to bring us to the salvation that we have in Christ. Both of them are concerned with this, that we might receive our salvation and at the same time give all the glory for our salvation to Christ, to God. He's the one who has done the great work of redemption. The law doesn't save us. It was never intended to save us. But it was given 
to drive us to the only means by which we can be saved, and that is by faith in Christ. And whenever the law is kept within that framework of the purpose that God has given for it, then it's good. It's good for us. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that the law is holy and just and good, and we'll look at that scripture in just a minute. And if God has ordained it for a specific purpose, it can't be anything other than holy and just and good. But when men take the law and they remove it from the context of what it's supposed to do, that's when the law becomes a snare to us. And before Paul became a Christian, he was like every other person in the world. I mean, although he was a Jew and self-described as the best among the best, a Hebrew among the Hebrews, even though he was the very best of the Jewish people, at the bottom line, he was actually no different than the pagan philosophers of the Greeks and the Romans. And that's because, just like them, both of them had the idea that the way to be just before God is a human achievement, that we gain our salvation by what we do. But when Paul's eyes were opened to the gospel, he realized that the commandments that were given to life were given for life only in a way very much different than he supposed. Those commandments that he learned ordained to life were actually mixed up or were actually mixed up in his mind. And so the commandments are something that just actually caused him spiritually to be put to death. This is what he says in Romans chapter 7. He says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Now there the Apostle Paul has come to the conclusion that the law did exactly what it was supposed to do. Paul thought that he could be saved by it, but instead it revealed to him the very depths of his depravity. He thought that he was good but he found out that he was actually a billion miles from the perfection that God required of him. And so the law could do him no good if he tried to be saved by it, but instead every time that he tried to be lifted up by the law and keeping the commandments, he found that he couldn't do it, that they kicked him in the face, that they pushed him down, and they bruised him and battered him to where he was just spiritually, as we've said in the book of Matthew, spiritually bankrupt. And in that split second of Paul's conversion, when he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he knew that he was in no place to stand before a holy God. He couldn't stand in the presence of God. And so this Hebrew of the Hebrews, the one who was the best of the best, he saw himself then as wicked and blind and miserable, naked, and that's when he surrendered to the Lordship of Christ and he said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And that is exactly the reason that the law was given. It was given to beat us into submission until we come to the place that we say, Lord, what will you have me to do? That's why we're given the law. Now, by contrast, Paul keeps bringing this up to the Galatians that they had been deceived into thinking that the law was their way out. They had been told that justification was not complete until they had added something to it until they'd thrown in their best efforts. And Paul's point here is that the best that they could ever hope for if they thought like that was to be brought back under the bondage of the law again, and it could do nothing but put them into condemnation. Now that brought us to the second point of our outline, which is the freedom of faith. The law was never intended to justify, but it did serve a righteous purpose. 
As I've mentioned, it keeps us down, it keeps bruising us, it keeps condemning us until it drives us to seek deliverance by faith. And then when we come to Christ in faith, it changes our disposition towards the law. Once it was a cruel taskmaster that would not let us come up for air, but then when we receive Christ by faith, the law takes on a new relationship with us, and we understand that it has become the respected teacher that deposits us at the feet of Jesus. And once we have received Christ, we lovingly submit to the law, because we understand then that our obedience pleases him, That obedience is the way to a right relationship with God, and our faith frees us from law's condemnation and gives us a new relationship to the law, not that it saves us, but that our obedience to it honors and glorifies God. Now, this evening, I want to continue our thoughts from verse number 26, where Paul says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, in verse 23, Paul said, We were kept under the law. And in verse 24, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And then verse 25, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And you notice the we and the our and the us, and there's an appropriate application that says that Paul was speaking to the Gentiles when he said this, and or rather to the Jews that were among this Galatian congregation. Now, the Jews had been given the laws of Moses, and the law was intended to bring them to Christ. But here, when Paul speaks of the law being our schoolmaster, he has more in his mind than just the laws that were given by Moses on Mount Sinai. But here he also includes the laws that are written on the human heart. The Gentiles didn't have the laws of Moses, but they had what every person in the world has, and that is the law of God that has been written on the human heart. I mentioned to you on Sunday about a doctor that I was speaking to over at Kaiser, and we got into a discussion about this when he asked me, well, what do you do about all these people that are never, never heard of Jesus Christ? Are they going to go to heaven, or are they, are they going to be saved? He said, I, I've heard that they will be. And I said, no, that's not right. They won't be. And they won't be because they have not lived up to the light that God has given them, the law that's written on the heart. They have disobeyed that law, and so they too are sinners against God. Now the Jews then were given these laws of Moses that were intended to bring them to Christ. And so when he speaks of, when Paul speaks of we, he's talking about Jews. But when he, all, when he speaks of we, he also includes the Gentiles, and that we becomes Jews and Gentiles alike, and that becomes very apparent by verses 26 to 29. Now, the Jews could keep on reading Paul's letter that was written to the church, and they could read Jews when he says we, and that wouldn't have done any violence to the text because Paul uses the last verses of this chapter to do away with all of the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. And so if he's talking directly to Jews, that's not a problem. And the Gentiles could read it as Jews and Gentiles, and there it shows this new unity of the faith that should exist between two very divisive groups of people. So in verse number 26, Paul points out that all are the sons by faith. All of us are sons of God by faith, that it makes no difference whether you are Jew or Gentile, all are justified by the same method. And if justification was by the Mosaic law, that means the Jews would have the upper hand. 
Bible says that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And so the Jews then, if salvation came by the law, by the Mosaic law, they would have a leg up, so to speak, on Gentiles. They would have an advantage because Jews were given the knowledge of the true God through a special revelation from Mount Sinai. But along with that special revelation, if that's what they want to claim, also comes greater responsibility. If they have a unique a new unique revelation that came from God specifically to them, then it also means that they have greater responsibility, that the Jews are accountable more for the rejection of truth than were the Gentiles who didn't have that truth. Now, both of them are condemned because they fail to recognize the light that God had given, but the ones that have the greater light are the ones that face the greater responsibility and condemnation. But the wonderful point that's made here about the condemnation of both Jews and Gentiles is that both receive the forgiveness of God by faith. Both come to God by the same method and both are forgiven by God on the same grounds. And the grounds of that forgiveness is faith in Jesus Christ. So that's a very important point that's made here, that the law is not the great equalizer between people. The equalizer between us all is faith. Now, the Jews thought that they were closer to God than the Gentiles because they had the law. I mean, to them, the law was their stepping stool, they thought, that made them closer to God. And so they had one leg up, as I said a moment ago, one step up on their ladder towards God because they had been given the Mosaic law. But actually, that ladder that they were climbing was not going up to God at all, but was a ladder descending into the pit of hell. They thought that they were going up, but they were going down actually at a faster pace than were the Gentiles. And I guess you could look at it this way. The Gentiles were also surely on a descent to hell. They're condemned as well. But the Jews that trusted the Mosaic law, having been given greater light, are not only on a descending ladder to hell, they are actually on an escalator. They're going down faster because of that greater responsibility. So they have a more rapid descent into hell. So the good news is, though, that there is another ladder that reaches God, and that is the ladder of faith. Or we might say that faith actually puts you on the right ladder, and that right ladder is Jesus Christ. And that's what Jacob learned in that story in the book of Genesis where he wrestled with the angel, and there was the ladder that ascended into heaven. That, that ladder represents Jesus Christ. So faith has always been the means by which we reach God. And since human works are not what bring us to God, then human works are not what makes one person better than another. We're not going to heaven on our own merits. We're going to heaven on the merits of Jesus Christ. And so that means that whatever you do does not make you closer to God than me, and whatever I do does not make me closer to God than you. Because it's not what we do that gets us to heaven. It is our faith in Jesus Christ, and all of it's on him. And so when you come to God in faith, you realize that you're no better than anyone else, that Jesus is the one that makes the difference between us, not us. So what does that do? Well, we look at verse number 28, and here's what happens when all people come to God by faith. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Now here's the point that Paul is making with that verse. 
It is that we are all the same by faith. That faith is the thing that's the great equalizer between us. And what Satan has always tried to do is to use the differences between us to jack up our pride and to make us think that we're better than others. We're better than the person that's next to us because of who we are. And those differences that we keep extenuating are the, extenuating are the causes of this oppression that we have. And, and we don't realize that there's actually none of us that's better than anyone else. Now, you look at the Jews, they thought that they were superior to everybody else because they were Jews. And we notice in this verse that Paul attacks every category in which the Jews thought that they were better. The best Jews thought that they were better because they were not Gentiles. And they thought that they were better because they were not slaves. And they were better because they weren't women. And Paul was very familiar with all of that because being a Pharisee, he prayed the very same prayers that all the rest of the Pharisees prayed. When they prayed, they said, I thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile, and I was not born a slave, and I was not born a woman. And Paul knew those prejudices. He'd been there, and so he aims directly at all of these prejudices, and he shoots an arrow right through the heart of all of them. Now, we take a look at this starting at the top, and we'll work our way down through this, of how Paul says that these things are not what make you closer to God, and these things are not the difference between you and somebody else. Now, we start off with this, that the Jews thought that they were better because they were Jews, but God says that none are better because of race. One of the great problems that the Jews had with the misinterpretation of the law was the belief that they were naturally superior to the other races, naturally superior. Now, to the Jews, the Gentiles were dogs. And when I speak of dogs, and when they spoke of dogs, I'm not talking about these little lap dogs that may have got off the leash and wandered around the streets being lost. That's not what they're talking about. When the Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, they were talking about the scavengers. They were speaking of wild packs of dogs that roamed the streets and ate the garbage and lapped up the sewage that was in the gutters. That's how they looked at Gentile people. They were dogs. Now, the Old Testament was quite explicit about the Jews separating themselves from Gentiles. We're very much aware of that. Uh, They were to separate themselves from other people. We have many instances of that in the Old Testament that says the Jews must separate from other nations. One of the things that separated them was circumcision. That kept them apart. Um, People, if anybody wanted to be counted with Israel, they had to submit to the right of circumcision. The dietary laws kept them separate. Gentiles and Jews didn't eat the same things. The laws of worship kept Jews and Gentiles separate. Those laws of worship were different. There weren't any idols in the tabernacle. There were no idols in the temple at Jerusalem. And whenever the Jews had to bring a sacrifice, they went to a specific place. Either they had to go to the tabernacle or later to the temple that was in Jerusalem. So they couldn't sacrifice where the heathen sacrificed in the groves and the high places and and things like that. They had to be at the specific place where God says, this is where you bring your sacrifice to worship me. So those laws of worship were different. But we notice something about each of those things that I've said, that none of those things have anything at all to do with natural birth. It doesn't have anything to do at all with the way that you're born. In fact, in uh, John chapter 1, doesn't John make that very point when he says that it's not the will of the flesh? It's not because of our flesh that we are born of God? 
So the flesh has nothing to do with that. Natural descent has nothing to do with it. And yet that's how the Jews thought that they received their favor with God. This is what made them what they were. But the favoritism that God had for the Jews was not because of who they were. It was not based in them, but it was based in God himself. And we find that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where Moses says to the people, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because, listen, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn to your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So here Moses said, the reason that God favored you is because of an oath that he made to your fathers. Well, who was that oath made to? Well, the oath is the promise that was made to Abraham. The Jews enjoyed God's favor because of the promise that had been made to Abraham. And how was it that Abraham received that promise? It was a promise that was received by faith. But what the Jews had done, they'd passed over faith. They were proud of their heritage. They thought that they were different and thought that they were the top dogs because they were born in Israel and came from Abraham. And that's the very same thing that Jesus faced when he talked with the scribes and the Pharisees. They said that we are righteous, we are God's people because we are born of Abraham. And Jesus pointed out that the only reason that Abraham was righteous was because of the faith that he had in him. That there was no part with God because of natural descent. It had to come from spiritual descent. And that's by having the same faith as Abraham. Now, since Paul is speaking to both Jews and Gentiles in the passage, what do you think the Gentiles thought about this? Well, they had their own ideas about who was superior. They thought that they were superior. Now, what the Jews did, they divided the world into Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles divided the world into Greeks and barbarians, and in the case of the Romans, Romans and barbarians. So either Greek or Roman, they were superior to all other people. And Paul says this is none of that, that Jesus Christ is the great equalizer. Now, obviously, there are differences between races. There are whites and blacks and Hispanics and Orientals. Those differences exist on a physical level, but they do not exist on a spiritual level. And you'll find this to be true, that when you get the spiritual level figured out and you understand that, when you understand how you have a relationship with God, that takes care of the physical level. So we realize that in God, we live and move and have our being. Being, And when we understand that, we'll realize that we are no better than any person of any other race. And so the wonderful truth of this passage is that salvation brings all the races together on equal footing at the cross of Christ. We are all sinners redeemed in one way and one way only. We're saved not by us, but by Christ. Now, you know what that means? It means that as long as people are outside of Christ, the divisions remain. And those divisions, as you know, become so severe that they render race, gender race warfare. Now, it's serious enough that Satan is able to perpetuate those divisions and keep the upper hand, 
And then, and that causes many people to think that they are superior because of their race. And what Paul is telling us here is that when you become a Christian, all of that has to be left behind. We are all one in Christ, and so we are to act like we are one in Christ. Well, we look at the second category. The Pharisee said, I thank you, God, that I was not born a slave, but God says that none are better because of rank. On several occasions in past studies, I've commented that in the Roman Empire, half of the population was enslaved to the other half. And it's always been true that people that are attracted to Christianity, the one that God calls, are out of the most downtrodden in society. And you know why it's true that most Christians do not come from the richest people, the wealthiest people on the planet? Well, it's because those that know that they have no hope economically, that they're not held in high esteem by others, that they realize there's nothing that they can do to help themselves, the trip to soul's humility is a much shorter one than it is for a rich person. See, a rich person won't lift up his eyes to heaven because he doesn't think he needs anybody's help. He doesn't look up because he doesn't think that he has to. Jesus told a parable about this in Luke chapter 12 about a rich man that had no place to put all of his stuff. Uh, He was doing well. He uh, was doing fine. His crops were yielding a bountiful harvest. And so this rich man said, I will say to my soul, So thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Satisfied with what he had. He didn't need God. Jesus says, God speaks to that man. God said unto him, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then you may remember that in the book of Revelation that Jesus warned the lukewarm church of Laodicea about their trust in their prosperity. He said to them, So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And then Paul warned in 1 Timothy 6, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Now neither Jews... Or Gentiles wanted to hang out with slaves. And yet much of the population of the early Christian church was slaves. These are people that had gladly received the gospel of Christ because they found hope when they had no hope. And so you have this mixture of free men and slaves in the early church, and many times they held over those prejudices that they had before they came to know Christ. And some of them thought because they were free that they were better than other Christians. And Paul had to address that with the runaway slave Onesimus. You remember that story? How that Onesimus was a saved slave, and he ran away from his master who was a saved slave master. And when Paul met him, he told Onesimus that the thing that he must do, he must go back and see his his master and go back and surrender himself and come back under that, that, that slave system that he was in, surrender himself to to his master, and Paul knew that that was going to be a problem. Now, Philemon was a saved man, but what if he 
did not give up those pre-salvational prejudices that he held. Well, Paul expected him to do that. And we think, well, or you may think, well, what does that have to do with us? Because we don't have slaves today. But the same principle that's being taught here holds good for all socioeconomic classes. That the well-to-do and the ones that have the high-paying jobs and live in the nice houses and drive the nice cars in the church should not look down on others that do not have as much as they have. I mean, the Apostle Paul made this clear in 1 Corinthians, and we'll be able to hit this again as we get into our uh, sermons in Matthew on this very subject about how we are to treat the little children of God. That's coming up. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, you remember he said that not many wise, not many noble, not many of the mighty are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world, didn't he say that, to confound the wise? So, so God has not chosen many of those people. And yet, it's, it seems so strange that there were so many poor people in the church and then there was so much disdain for poor people among that early church. It doesn't really make much sense. And we, and we still hold on to those same prejudices today because it's much, much easier for us. I mean, it's really hard for us to get over this, that it's much, much easier for us to accept the person who comes in in a suit and a tie than it is to accept the homeless person who comes into our congregation. That's a naturally held prejudice that we have, that we have to get over because God doesn't want us to have those kind of divisions among his people. Now, James addressed that. He said that we're not to have respect of persons, that kind of respect. And as I said, it's really odd that in the early church there were so many poor people and yet they developed a kind of attitude that they looked down on poor Christians. And we notice what James says in James chapter 2, verse number 1. He said, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel... And there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? Now, the last part of that is just, just so significant. God hath chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. And that takes us again back to that thought that the Apostle Paul gave in 1 Corinthians. Not the mighty, not the noble, not the rich, not the wise. Those, not many of those are chosen. And so God does not look at the economic status as the measure of a person. The rich are rich, the poor are poor, but the most important thing is how are we rich towards God? I mean, you think about the the poor, I mean, the rich rather, why, why should they think that they're anything when their riches are so puny compared to what God has? I mean, what does what the richest person on earth have that, that God doesn't have and, and billions and billions of more besides? He's not impressed by what people have. So what makes the difference in people? Well, it's not them, it's what is described there in that passage that they are rich in faith. And what is their faith? Well, their faith is in Christ, and it's the object of their faith that actually makes their faith valuable. So the difference in people is not economic, it is a spiritual difference. Paul says, ye are all the children of God 
by faith. None are better because of race, and none are better because of rank. Now, thirdly, he takes on another group here, and he says that none are better because of sex. There is neither male nor female. Now, the Jews said, and the Romans were right there with them on this, I am glad that I'm not a female. Now, every woman in the audience tonight and every woman across the world needs to be thankful for the Apostle Paul because he was light years ahead of the rest of the world on the subject of the equality of women. Paul taught that men and women were to be treated as equals, and he said that in the midst of a world that was almost universally united on this, that women were inferior to men. Also, ladies, you need to be thankful to Paul but you, all, you really do need to be sure that you know what Paul said and what Paul did not say. Now, he did say that it's not right for women to be treated as second-class citizens in the church. And he did say that when you become a Christian, that all these differences, the differences that we have in the sexes is lost, and that women are to be treated like men and men are to be treated like women. Now, I said treated like, not look like. There's a big difference there. But there is to be an equal treatment between men and women. But he did not say that there are no differences between men and women in the operations of the church. Now, there are many that have taken this scripture and they've used it as a defense for the ordination of women and used that to put women into the ministry. But this chapter and these verses have absolutely nothing to do with favoring female ordination into the office of the pastor or deacons of a church. And and this is clear, this is clear by the order that God has established in creation. First of all, God created the man and then he created the woman. And he put them together and the marriage of the man and the woman is emblematic of the church. And Paul taught in Ephesians that the woman is to be in submission in the church just as she is in submission to her husband in the home. But submission is not the same as inferiority. Now you take as an example a general in an army and the army may be far less a person ethically and morally and educationally than a private in the army. And the private does not submit to a general because he is an inferior person. He submits to him because of the authority. There always has to be good order that's maintained. And so it's best for the husband to be the head of the wife in the home, just as the Christ is the head of the church. So God has ordained the roles of men and women in the church, but that ordination, the the setting and order of the men and women in the church has nothing to do with one sex being better than the other. It all has to do with God-ordained authority. And so the scriptures teach that women are not to be teachers of men in the church. Now, I'm going to get into that as we talk about the charismatic movement here this week or next, I believe it may be this week, that women are not to take authority over men in teaching in the church. And the Bible also says that women are to keep silent in the church. And there are some that protest that and they say, well, if if the woman must submit to the the man in the church, then that means that she is inferior to him. But again, submission is not inferiority. And to prove that, all that we need to do is to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 3. There it says, 
But I would have you to know, Paul's writing this, but I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And notice there, he says, the head of Christ is God. And my question for you, is Jesus equal, is Jesus Christ equal to God the Father? Well, of course he is. The God the Father and the Son, they're co-eternal, they're co-existent, they're co-equal. But when it comes to the work of redemption, what did Jesus do? He submitted himself to the authority of the Father. But the submission to that authority did not make him inferior to the Father. That's because submission has nothing to do with inferiority. So Jesus was willing to submit himself to the, to the Father in the work of redemption. And if they do not remain equal, then we cannot teach that God is a trinity. Might as well throw the trinity out of the window. So what Paul is saying here is don't carry out all of these predisposed religious attitudes that you have about women. Treat them with the respect that they deserve. They're not second-class citizens. Now, the real key to this is that the differences still exist, but the differences between us are not differences of fellowship. They should not affect fellowship. We are all one in Jesus Christ. But be careful to note that Paul does not say that in the offices of the church, that every office of the church is equal to both or open equally to both men and women. And then another thing that you can't do with this passage, which some tried to do, is to carry it to an extreme and say that this is also speaking about sexual orientation. Now this doesn't overrule anything else that Paul said when he talked about homosexuality. I mean, there's plenty of scripture where Paul talked about that issue, and we're not to take this scripture and try to pit it against that, as if Paul has now given us some great big revelation about the equality of, of, the, uh, of the different sexual orientations. Now, when the Bible says that we are to believe in Jesus Christ, well, first of all, we don't take Scripture and pit it against another, but the Bible says that we are believers in Christ, that we are all the children of God by faith, and faith means that you believe in Christ, which is the same as saying that you believe everything that God says because He is God. The Scripture says that He is full of grace and truth. And so everything that's written in the Word of God that came from God is the truth. And if you believe in Christ, you have to accept all of that truth. Now let's consider the last point of the lesson here, and we'll do this hurriedly. All are the seed by faith. Look at the last verse of our text. And if you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now Jews... Or Gentiles cannot be separated from God or joined to God because of natural descent. But all that believe in Christ become the spiritual seed of Abraham. Now what God did was he promised that he would bless all of the nations through Abraham. And when you receive Christ as Savior, you become an heir or a benefit of that promise that God made to Abraham. Now what Abraham did, as we studied this some months ago... He looked beyond that little patch of ground that God promised to give him in Israel. And the Bible says that Abraham looked for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And we are the heirs of that promise that was made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. And that promise is sure because God confirmed it with an oath. And Scripture says it is impossible for God to lie. Stott says it well. 
In Christ I am a son of God. In Christ I am united to all the redeemed people of God, past, present, and future. In Christ I discover my identity. In Christ I find my feet. In Christ I come home. Do you see the difference between those that seek justification by law instead of by faith? In one, there is bondage. In one, there is this cruel taskmaster that will not let us come up for air. But in the other, there's this blessed freedom. In the other, we have all of our imperfections made perfect in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In the other, we become heirs to all of the possessions of God. In the other, we come home. And so Paul tells these people that seek to be justified by the law once they've been given the truth about justification by faith. He said in the beginning of the chapter, Oh, foolish Galatians, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Can you now be made perfect by what you do? Can you be perfect by the works of the flesh? And the obvious answer through numbers and numbers of verses that we've studied, the obvious answer is absolutely not. Nah, nada, no possible way that that can be done. Salvation is by Christ alone from start to finish. It is all Christ and none of us. That's the cardinal doctrine of Christianity. And hang on to that because it's going to be a while before we get to the fourth chapter. I don't know how long it'll be, but uh, we'll get to it eventually. And uh, just keep, keep that in your mind. Justification, that's the theme, and that's the big, big doctrine of all of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we spend in your word tonight. And Lord, how important that this doctrine is. And, of course, this is the reason why that Paul spends so much time on it and keeps emphasizing over and over again. He does this because he wants us to do the very same thing, to make sure that we do not lose the truth of this message, that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that's the message we have to give to others. Lord bless us. We thank you for the time spent together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.